The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you again this week, coming on this Sunday after Easter. What a time of new celebrations last week, new rhythms, new traditions beginning I hope that it was a meaningful time for you and for your family. We are stepping back in now to our series of looking at the everyday church, looking at 1 Peter. And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, wherever you are seated, I invite you to open to 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. We're going to read through chapter 3, verse 17. And where you are, I would invite you now as well uh, to stand in reverence for the hearing uh, and the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to an emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brethren, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while enduring unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see that your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. 
For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. For the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and with respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The other day I bumped into a young Marine and I began a fascinating conversation with him. He was somewhat embittered. He was generally disillusioned with the whole life of being a Marine. And when I asked him to explain what was going on, he began to share with me his story. You see, he joined the Marines and was sent to Paris Island just up the road for training. As you would expect, it was challenging. It was rigorous training but everyone was doing it together. And after a while, he grew tired of the early mornings, of the late nights, of the marches, of the physical exercise, of the food in the mess hall, of the high and tight haircut, and the fatigues. This just didn't seem to be what he had signed up for. He resented it at some level. He didn't really want to do it. His heart it wasn't in it, but he made it through, barely, and he was commissioned as a lance corporal. He was then sent up the road to Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. He received, while there, orders to be deployed to the Middle East. Now he really wasn't happy. He couldn't believe that he had to go to the Middle East for 12 months living in less than ideal conditions uh, with real enemies, shooting real guns with real bullets flying by him. It was an incredibly dangerous and challenging mission that he had been given an assignment, a deployment for him. He missed his old life. He missed the Friday nights with his buddies. He missed the drinking and the going out, the goofing off the leisure of days unscripted. Marine life was so different from what he had known. 
and it was different from what he had signed up for. But while he was in the Middle East, he was wounded by a roadside IED. He was sent home to heal and to recover. And this is when we had this conversation. That's the context of this conversation. And so I listened to him. And when he was done telling me all of his frustrations and sharing with me all of the difficulties of being a Marine, I asked him a simple question. I just looked at him and I said, well, what did you expect when you signed up? He paused and looked down at the ground and looked around and fumbled for his words and he looked back and he said, well, I only signed up so that I could get the GI Bill so that when my enlistment was done, I would be able to pray, pay uh, for college. I didn't sign up for all of this craziness. Friends, that conversation never happened. I didn't bump into a Marine this week and have that talk. And quite honestly, I doubt that that conversation ever happens with the men and women who enlist to join the Marines for they know what they're signing up for. No, that conversation never happened with a Marine, but I promise you that I've had that, that conversation a hundred times or more with Christians in the church, with so many people within the context of the church who come and they tell me all of the frustrations that they have in following Jesus Christ, all the frustrations they have, because you see, uh, they wanted to follow Jesus to get the GI Bill. They wanted to get to heaven. They wanted all the benefits of everything that happens after, as it were, uh, their enlistment in this life. They don't like the idea of training and learning about a life of a disciple who follows Christ and looks an awful lot like him. They don't like being different from the surrounding culture. They miss the good old days of when they could hang out with their friends in unscripted days and do whatever they wanted to do and be whoever they wanted to be, accountable to absolutely no one. They refuse to be deployed. And they say they never signed up to face an actual enemy who shoots actual spiritual bullets at them. You see, they say they want Jesus, but in actuality, they don't. Some of you may relate to this person, because when we say this, we don't really want Jesus. What we want is a construct of Jesus that has absolutely nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible, who said such audacious things as, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Or follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Or pick up your cross and follow me. The Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus whose resurrection we celebrated this past Sunday, he promises eternal life at the end of the day, but it comes at the end of a life lived on mission at the end of a life lived on his mission. Jesus did not come simply to make our lives convenient and comfortable. Jesus came to call to himself disciples who would accomplish his purposes in the world upon his absence. And if that's the case, and it is the case, 
It's important for us to consider this mission. It's important, no, it would be, I would say, imperative for us to know our everyday mission and to learn how to live it out day by day. So this morning, we're going to look at six things. We're just going to touch on them, but I invite you uh, to look at them more fully in the days to come. We are going to define our mission. We are going to clarify our message. We're going to embrace our methodology or our methods. We're going to acknowledge our enemy. We're going to access, access our power and then pursue our goal. In order to live within our everyday mission, we need to define our mission, clarify our message, embrace our methods, acknowledge our enemy, access our power, and pursue our goal. So the first thing that we look at this morning, define our mission. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which rage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, God saved us for and to a purpose. And that purpose wasn't self-referenced. It wasn't to save us just so we would be saved, just so we would get to heaven. We do get heaven, but he saved us. He called us. He redeemed us. He said, you were without mercy. Now you have mercy. You were not a people. Now you are a people. You have been brought out of darkness into his glorious light. And he uses a little word there in verse 9. He says, that so that for the purpose of, for the express reason for you to do this is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So our mission, broadly speaking, is to proclaim the excellencies of God. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and we've said this before on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, it asks this very simple question. What's the chief end of man? What is the ultimate purpose of man for which God created man and for which God saves man? Well, the chief end of man, as you would know and are repeating maybe where you are now, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Another way to say that, to proclaim his excellencies, to proclaim the excellencies of the one who gave you his only son, our chief mission in our life is to give glory to God and to reflect his radiance, the radiance of his glory in our lives. We live for something. We live for someone beyond ourselves. And with that overall mission in and nested within that mission is the mission that Christ himself lived in bringing glory and honor to his father and then the mission that he entrusted to us. Christ's mission was very simple. He said in Luke chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, that the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. He said, I came to only seek that which was lost. And in Luke 4, verses 18 and 19, he said uh, when he was in the synagogue and he was reading from Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, 
He said, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Christ was on a sent mission. Christ was sent by the Father. And he accomplished his mission in the life that he lived, then in dying and being buried and being raised from the dead. And then in Matthew chapter 28, when he ascended, he then took that mission and he gave it to us. He entrusted it to us. In the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, he says these words, but you will receive the Holy Spirit, the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So this mission that Christ has given to us is to be his witnesses, to give testimony, uh, to show forth within the world who he is, what he is about, to continue to exemplify, as it were, his work in the world. And Peter picks up on that. Peter was there in Acts chapter 1. He preached the glorious sermon in Acts chapter 2. And now he says, friends, I'll say it a different way. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Be a good witness for Christ. Live in such a way that reflects the glory and the beauty of Christ on his mission to be a witness, that we are called to be his witnesses, to live distinctively Christian lives in the midst of a distinctively non-Christian culture for the hope which we will talk about later, the goal of winning men and women and girls and boys to Christ. And so this mission that Christ has entrusted to us is to be his witnesses, but it's also to be his ambassadors. Going to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We are official envoys, as it were. We are his representatives proclaiming his words as an ambassador would, as the U.S. ambassador uh, to England, uh, to Great Britain, would speak the words of our government. So we, the ambassadors of Christ from his kingdom, represent and live out from who we are and give the message of our king in this official title and this official message. So we are his witnesses, we are his ambassadors, and we are his disciple makers. We are his disciple makers. Matthew 28, the very famous passage that most people know so well. In verse 19, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We are called to make disciples. We are called to call people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And for most of us, we describe ourselves as Christian. But I wonder how many of you would describe yourself as a disciple. Some of you are sitting and pondering that, well... I know I love Jesus, but I don't know if I could call myself a disciple. Friends, I set you up on that one. There's no distinction between a Christian and a disciple. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, the word Christian is only mentioned three times, but the word disciple is mentioned 260 times. We're called to be a disciple. We're called to go out and to call others to be disciples. 
We are called within the church, the gathered body of disciples, to go and to make disciples. First, by witnessing, by telling people the good news, to see them come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. But then by training them up, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, that him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his, his energy, that he powerfully works within me, that we are called to develop, to grow, to mature, to train up, to coach others to become like Christ, to be disciples. You see, Christ is no longer here. He has ascended. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, but his mission has not ended His mission has been entrusted to us, reliable men and women who will carry it out on his behalf. The mission of the ecclesia, of the gathered church, is to make, equip, and deploy mature disciples of Christ in order to accomplish his goals. We have this very clear mission. We are here not simply to collect a heavenly GI bill, at the end of the day. Christ did not save you. He did not save me simply to get me to heaven. Some of you have been taught that. Some of you have bought into that false, as it were, teaching. But friends, you've been called and you've been saved by God to one day, yes, get to heaven. But in the meantime, to work on his behalf to accomplish his mission that gives our very existence, that gives our very lives purpose and meaning beyond themselves. So the first thing that we have to do in our lives as followers of Jesus is to define our mission. What are we here for? Why are we here? And we know that we are here to accomplish Christ's mission, to seek and save that which was lost, to gather to himself disciples and followers. But in order to do that, we need to clarify our message. We need to know what we're saying. We need to know what we are communicating. And the message that we have is very simply the gospel. We receive our message from Christ. It's the same message that he shared with all those who listened to him. Here, Matthew 4, 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We proclaim that same gospel of the kingdom. Are you able, just a simple question, if asked today, if somebody dropped out uh, of uh, the outer space, if somebody came from a place in the world who had never heard of Jesus Christ, who had never heard uh, the gospel of the good news of the kingdom, would you be able to explain it in such a way that they would be able to believe in the un? and the deep and profound truths of Scripture that Christ came and died and lived for them. You see, we use language in the church of word and deed. Too many people want to to gravitate to the deed side of things. We would falsely uh, say of St. Francis of Sissy that we should preach the gospel and use words if necessary. Interestingly about that, by the way, St. Francis of Sissy never said that. Because you see, St. Francis of Assisi and every other biblical teacher, 
evangelical biblical teacher in all the ages understood that it is impossible to preach the gospel without words. Yes, we have deeds, but we need to have words. We need to be able to share this message of Jesus Christ with the world around us. That's part of our role in the church for you, to help train you, to help equip you with those words so that you can share that message with all who would listen. So we need to know our mission. We need to clarify our message. And we need to embrace our methods. We need to embrace our methods. We talked a couple of weeks ago that the church now is no longer centered within our culture. Christendom is done. And the idea of attracting people to church uh, is dying a slow death, but it's a death that needs to be died. Because, you see, instead of trying to call people to a place where we can change our methodology within the church, what God is doing is he's deploying his church on mission with a message to go out into the world and to go back to the old methods, to go back to the old ways. We are not looking for better and improved methods. The church is not at the center anymore, and people will somehow come to us. We go to them. And when we go to them, what Peter says over and over within this passage of Scripture, he says, let your conduct be such. Let your lives live these things out. He speaks of people in every context, in every possible situation in which they find themselves. Chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 7, speaks of citizens. As citizens of a kingdom, you should be living in such a way that people will see Christ. If you're a servant or a slave, if you have an occupation, as it were, in our modern English, then you should live in such a way, both to good masters and to bad bosses, to those who are wonderful people and those who are tyrannical people, that we live in a way uh, that proclaims the excellencies, the good news of the gospel to those around, in family dynamics of husbands and wives, uh, that it's a powerful statement that Peter makes in here, that he says that unbelieving husbands can be won to faith because of the incredible lifestyle of a believing wife that it speaks of how she lives her life so profoundly before her unbelieving husband that he comes to faith. Another way to say all of this is that we share Christ. Our method is to share Christ in our lives where we live, where we work, and where we play. That means those of you who are listening who are students, when you are a student, are you doing so with God in mind? So that the way you study, the way that you perform, the way that you address your academics, the way that you engage in the hallways, the way that you are with other students is done in such a way that the world around would see something uniquely different within you. Married or single, are we living in such a way that those around us would see the beauty of Christ when we play sports, when we go to work, all that we do? You see... Peter prepares us to be able to give an account of the hope that is within us when we're questioned by a watching world, that the world is looking at our lives in such a way that they say, there's something distinctively different about you, and I want to hear what it is. Tell me what it is about you that makes you different from everybody else. Verse 14 of chapter 3, give a defense of the hope that is in you. 
Well, friends, how in the world would the world, how in the world would anybody around you ask you to make a defense if they're not seeing it in you? Peter is assuming that the Christian church in the first century at least, and now to us, was living in such a way that the world around was going, I don't understand why you're living this way. Tell me why you're living this way. Does the hope that you have in Christ have any effect at all on the life that you're living in such a way that the watching world can see something different about you? This COVID-19 virus is exposing the church, I'm afraid. It's exposing that so many in the gathered church have no real understanding of the hope that is within them, or far worse, that they have no real hope at all. I've been watching social media posts of those within our congregation and friends who are believers uh, around the world, and I must say that we are not responding very differently than the unbelieving world. We're blaming everybody else for everything. We're taking sides. We are getting our PhDs and complaining. We're drinking more. We are acting like our homes are morgues. At some level, we're acting like a child whose father took away their favorite toy. And we're throwing parties. Oh, for sure, we're throwing parties. But they're pity parties. Oh, woe is me. How bad is this? How could this happen? Don't get me wrong. This is incredibly difficult, and it's incredibly challenging, and it is for me as well. These are unprecedented days. I'm challenged in the same ways that you are challenged, and I admit, as we all would, that I don't always respond uh, the best. I'm not above it. But friends, let me say this. If anyone in the world should be responding differently to this pandemic, it should be the church of Jesus Christ. If anybody in this world should be responding with some sort of response that is different from the general population, it should be those people who are elect exiles and sojourners within this world who say, this world is not my home. I am from someplace else, and though I feel the pains of this world, though I understand everything that's going on, I will not be bound to respond in the same way that the world around me responds. And when people ask us about it, instead of just saying, well, I'm just trying to make it through the best I can, what is it that's different about you? Well, I'm just trying to do my best, you know, make it one day after another. Friends, why not say something to this effect? It is hard. It is incredibly difficult. But I have this hope. I have this hope in a God who is seated upon a throne and though I don't understand everything that's happening, and I probably never will, I know this, that he cares for me. And whether or not, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whether or not he shows up and saves me from the fiery pit, I know he can, but even if he doesn't, praise be to God. Or like Job, is it me who would accept good from the Lord and not ill from the Lord? Blessed be the name of the Lord. We don't want to say those things because we don't want people then to ridicule us. We don't want people to look at us and go, oh, Pollyanna, you're just one of those folks. But you see, we need to embrace our method. And our method is living it out and giving testimony to the hope that is within us. And when we recognize, even in our own souls, that downcastness, that sense of loss, 
We need to preach to our hearts more than we need to listen to our hearts. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Put your hope in God. You see, the natural response of people when they face trauma or threat is fight, f- fight, flight, or freeze. We are human, and so we recognize these moving within each of us. But I would encourage you this morning to fight. Fight the urge to run to what the world offers in order to cope. Fight the tendency to freeze in place and be paralyzed by fear and uncertainty. Fight the good fight of faith and believe the truth of the Scriptures. Lean into them and re-enter that good mission that God has given to us. The companion book that we have been reading Everyday Church talks about how we fight this fight, how we live out our lives and gives some really great uh, options for us of how our lives can begin to impact those who are around us. I'd invite you to look at that chapter on Everyday Mission. So we need to know our mission. We need to know our message. We need to know our methods. We need to acknowledge our enemies. I'll speed up here. We need to acknowledge our enemies. If I left it simply at go out there and try better, you would say to me and I would say to me, it's not that easy. And the reality is it's not. All throughout Peter, Peter is writing within a culture and to a church that is being assaulted at some level. At this point in the writing, they're mainly being assaulted verbally. They're being assaulted relationally. But later... They're actually assaulted physically. You see, there are real enemies and true threats that are out there, and they are trying to keep us from accomplishing our mission. They're trying to mute our message of the good news of the gospel. Martin Luther said that we need to be very aware of the flesh, the devil, and the world. The flesh, that sin within us that so easily entangles us, that old self, that, that sin that is still there, those desirings that are still there which draw us away. We are in conflict in that. The devil, we have a real enemy. Peter says later in chapters 4 and 5, speaking of uh, an enemy that is prowling around us. And we have a world that is under the influence of sin and a culture around us that is threatening. And when you are feeling challenged in your life, Don't go straight to that self-contempt. Don't go straight to that beating yourself up. Maybe acknowledge that there is an enemy. Acknowledge that there is something against you and pray that God would defend you and give you a power that would allow you to accomplish what he's called you to do. That leads us to our next point, that we need to access our power, that we need to access our power. You see, when Christ ascended, he gave us the Holy Spirit. He said, I am always with you, even until the end of the age. How? He's seated in the heavenly places. How is he still with us? And the answer is through his spirit that he says there in Acts 1, 8, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you with power, that you have been given the fullness of the third person of the Trinity who is equal with God the Father, equal with God the Son, 
in power and in glory. It was the Holy Spirit which raised Christ from the dead. It was the Holy Spirit which was used by God the Father and God the Son to call all of creation into being. And it's as if we need to stop trying and plugging in a nine-volt battery into our lives, hoping that somehow there's enough power to accomplish His mission when we need and what we need is the cosmic, unbelievable, unbridled power of God Himself pulsing through our lives in order to make it through and proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you from darkness into light. For any of us not to be consumed by the darkness is an absolute act of God's powerful Spirit in our lives, moving us to a place where we can not only survive, but we can sing. And friends, it's available to all Christians, not just some special class of Christians who've received a second blessing, but it is for all of us who have this Spirit-filled life, this life given to us by God. So my encouragement would be to access His power. And then the final thing I'll say today, and the final thing that Peter is drawing us to, is again tying our mission and looking at it now as our goal, to pursue our goal. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21. To those outside the law, I become as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I became all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Paul and Peter are teaching that as we live out our lives, it is for the express purpose. It is for the agenda and the hope that we would see some, we would see many come to faith. Of course, we're not saying that we have the power in and of ourselves to save someone else. But we're saying that God can use us. And our prayer is that he would use us to lead family members, to lead neighbors, to lead friends, to lead co-workers, to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Our goal is to see many come to faith. Friends, these are challenging days. These are difficult times, but they'll come to an end. And I think the mission of the church now is more important than ever. We've joked and laughed that it's difficult to preach to an empty room, and it is. Someone sent me a little meme this week, and it said that the church isn't closed, it's been deployed. Friends, that's what we've been, we've been given is a deployment And so I pray you're not like that young Marine that I alluded to earlier who resents being deployed, but that you would see this as your very life, that God before the foundation of time loved you in his son, gave you his life so that you would accomplish for his glory's sake something that is eternal in nature. So let's define our mission. Let's clarify our message. Embrace our methods, acknowledge that we have an enemy, access the power that is for us, and pursue our goal of seeing many come to faith. That's the everyday mission that we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you first, as Peter wrote, that we were a people without mercy, and now we are a people given mercy. 
We were a people without a name, and now we are a people with a name, your name. That we were in bondage and slavery, and now we have been set free. That we were in darkness, and now we are in light. That we were orphans, and now we are daughters and sons of the King. That we were lost, and you pursued us through all the portals of time. And you came and found us and brought us to yourself. Father, we thank you that we are your children, sons and daughters. And Father, I pray that as we learn who we are, we would also learn what we are about. That you have given and trusted to us the very precious mission of Christ himself. That Christ didn't come just to make it through and ascend one day. He came to gather to himself all those you gave to him. And when he ascended, he gave us that great mission. So, Father, would you empower us by your spirit? Make us keenly aware of the enemies that are around us, that we would be able to defend ourselves, and you would defend us as our righteous king, but that we would live our lives in such a way that the world around us sees hope and not gloom and despair, that the world around us sees something that draws them to you. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.